Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Floor is rising. I am Sabertooth, and with me is Kizu. I'm a professional NFT collector, and Kizu is a professional art critic. On this podcast, we talk deeply about the business of creating, collecting, and analyzing NFTs. So if you are a creator or collector of NFTs, or you want to be, jump in. The water's warm. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Floor is Rising. With me today is artist, actor, performer, poet, writer, Lawrence Fuller. Lawrence, welcome to the show. How did you get into uh, NFTs? When it came to NFTs specifically, I was invested in blockchain technology and very interested in it since about end of 2017. I suppose, you know, when there was that first, when it was piercing kind of popular culture quite a lot the first time around, but the space really wasn't that mature. It was sort of something that I would kind of keep to myself or friends that, that I knew were in crypto. I would kind of like over a quiet beer would be like, Hey, how's it going with Chainlink or whatever you got? And, but it wasn't really something I talked about outside of that. But then when at the start of last year, when blockchain had what I consider its first like real big use case. I mean, there's been a, a lot of a lot of use cases, but but this was the, the first one that I really felt a part of, that I could be a part of, and that I felt connected to. I sort of came out the closet as a crypto user in my social media and, and whatever else. And, you know, it's just been amazing to see it all develop into this new art movement and this sort of cultural movement. You know, I think many people have found a, a cultural identity now through all this. And I just think it's a brilliant turning point in the narrative of art history. Lawrence, I'm very um, honored to be able to speak with uh, the son of, I guess, one of the most prominent British art critics from the post-war period. And um, congratulations, by the way, I, I found out that you won the uh, best adapted screenplay for the modern art film at the Burbank Film Festival last year. As I understand it, your father, Peter Fuller, was known for being very much a romantic at heart, right? So we know that one of the things he was very well known for was that he started the art magazine Modern Painters in 1987, which was named for the writings of John Ruskin, obviously one of the, you know, foremost figures in, in romantic art and, and literature in, in, in Britain. So full disclosure here, actually, I used to write for, for modern painters. My, my own background is as an art writer and critic. Do you remember like the kind of conversations you had or in terms of like the, the climate for art writing and, and criticism in general in, in Britain at the time? My father passed before I could uh, speak more than 180 words. But, you know, later in life, I developed the screenplay Modern Art, which is what I won the award for. It's not, it's not a film yet, but I'm working with producers and we have our director now. So, yeah, I, did, I have won a lot of awards for the screenplay. The early days of Modern Painters, a real, really interesting point in art history, in modern art history. You know, that was a really radical magazine. And I mean, my father was a part of radical magazines ever since the late 60s. And when he was very young, he was writing alongside Noam Chomsky in, in the underground papers and the avant-garde movement of the 60s and 70s. He was a part of all that. But then as he kind of evolved and as the culture evolved, he kind of witnessed what he, he thought was kind of an assault on beauty. 
the avant-garde art world was really sort of uh, squashing beauty out of the picture altogether with their narrative. Mm-hmm. And so he started to look back a bit. He started looking at more neo-romantic work and the sort of painters and, and traditional artists of his time that were, that were seeking beauty in their work that had a sense of uh, connection, I guess, to the tradition in, in artistic sense. And it was actually really radical at the time for him to be talking about that. You know, it was sort of a suicide sentence, to be honest, as like a, an art critic to be talking about beauty at, at that time. But there was a lot of people that felt that sentiment as well, that really yearned for a beautiful painting that was well done, as opposed to what was being fed to them in the contemporary art scene, which was arguably just trendy kind of trash that nobody even didn't last the test of time like a lot of the stuff that was being proposed as valuable or trendy or of its moment hasn't really stuck around when you did your research for the film for example so pouring through your father's writing and and understanding what he stood for i mean i assume that was a very perhaps emotional moving but also intellectual experience could you share a little bit about that process of digesting, I guess, your your father, your late father's output. It was really emotional, intellectually engaging and, and sort of spiritually engaging in, in every way. And it was kind of funny because I was out here in Hollywood where I where I live and kind of going through like I just wrapped on uh, the lead in a film that was, you know, a really a great experience and very much an American movie and going through like auditioning for series regulars and, and a lot of films out here and just being a part of the Hollywood system and kind of feeling somehow like disconnected to my journey. But having that every day to read through like my father's work and like how he found himself and how he discovered his own identity through culture and through art helped me hugely. For, it sort of saved me from an existential dive into the abyss, to be honest. And it connected me to something every day. Every day I would read, you know, his journals, his letters, his, his books and discover about the culture of his time and kind of mourn that there was nothing going on in our time that was like that, that, that was so engaged, like a community that was, was so engaged in culture. Obviously, a huge reason why I delved into NFT art community as much as I have was is now I kind of feel like we have that for ourselves. And Lawrence, I want to turn the focus back on, uh, I guess, your NFT sort of practice. The, the NFTs that you that you mint are unique in the sense that, well, I don't I don't know anyone else minting anything anything like it. Uh, in the in the sense that you know, if, if you look at a a typical Lawrence sort of full of NFT, uh, usually we have a, a neoclassical painting that has gone through maybe some GAN work, some animation work, and then it's either yourself performing a poem by another classic poet. And how would you, I guess, describe a how you sort of came up with that particular, I guess, format slash genre? I started doing that years ago before right. NFTs were ever a thing. And I would just do it for my social media as an outlet for my own my own poetry and uh, performing my own poetry. Yeah, those were the first the first works that I minted were my own poetry, um, "Childish Force of Nature," and I wrote that poem inspired by Simon Joe, who is a friend of mine and a painter that 
lives and works in Southern California and, and just visits to her studio. And uh, I was kind of writing the poetry as we were having conversations and she was painting. And then I, I put together like, you know, images of her paintings and animated them and, and performed to them and put some music over it. And initially it was just for Instagram. That was the first piece that I minted. And then, yeah, it, it evolved from there. Like suddenly there was a lot more interest in it, first of all, because my Instagram and the people I was showing it to were people in the film industry and actors. And they were like, yeah, Lawrence is really like artistic and quirky. That's great. Uh, <laughs> but then, you know, ha having people who kind of understood it a bit more, who were more invested in the art world and, and, and the arts in a different way, a more independent way, and also interested to invest in digital assets. It really took off, I guess, in the NFT world, people really got behind it. Um, partly because, you know, when doing that for traditional painters to put on social media, you know, it does add another element of something that's kind of dynamic to their painting. That's not just a, you know, a, a JPEG of their painting or a flat photograph of their painting, which I still value a lot. Like I'm, I have a huge collection of JPEGs of paintings and I'm, I'm very optimistic about their future, but I think it does add a, you know, a dynamic element to make it animated, to animate the painting and to put like a spoken word narrative to it. And it kind of brings to life all the different senses in the way that maybe a film does or a piece of video art. Video art has always been difficult in the traditional world because, and the, the problem with video art in the traditional world was that it's hard to make into an asset. So it, it has always been a kind of a niche within the art world and not something that tended to do very well or tended to catch off, except for like maybe one person I can think of, Matthew Barney. But in NFT world, it's perfect for the medium. So it does really well. <laughs> Video art in NFT world just does great. I mean, yeah, I, sp I suppose it's about combining cinema and poetry and painting and traditional art all together and for the first time we've been given a medium where we can do that i was wondering if you could say a little bit about what you think your, your late father would have thought of the space i think it's definitely an intersection of art and commerce you know you know but it's a traditional art world not not like that too like and just as much in different ways and like are we seeing that the free market capitalism in, in the traditional world is producing the best art? No, we're not. We're not seeing we're not seeing the best art selling for the best prices in the traditional art world. So, you know, that argument falls pretty short to me. Yeah. Also, you know, and it's been surprising that people like David Hockney, who is an artist I res respect tremendously, and actually, I think was one of my dad's favorite artists. I was trying to think if he was his favorite of his time. You know, one of his book covers is a list of names of artists and they're all crossed out except for David Hockney. David Hockney gave him his first leg up in 1968 when he let my father interview him for his magazine, his first magazine. And they were lifelong friends since. So I can probably tell you guys by whenever the time this comes out and probably you won't put it in writing, it'll just be for the people who listen. Then I'm actually playing David Hockney in an HBO series. Oh, really? Um, yeah. <laughs> I just rapped on it. Um, and they had no idea about the connection, my connection to the art world or anything. 
it's sort of hilarious how I got the role. I just auditioned for it. And the lead actress in their show they is British. And they, they kind of pulled her aside and asked her to pick out from their top choices who had the best Yorkshire accent. <laughs> <laughs> and so for all the reasons that I'm playing David Hockney, it's because I had the best Yorkshire accent in my audition tape. So I bring that up because, you know, David Hockney's been really negative about NFTs. And why that's surprising is because, like right now, he has an exhibition of uh, iPad prints out yeah. at the moment that that are that are gorgeous. That I mean, you have really have to look at them to see that they're not drawn on an iPad, uh, drawn on in on canvas. Sorry, painted on canvas. That they're actually drawn on an iPad. So it's an interesting thing that he's chosen to take that position on it. And I think maybe you know from in where he is. And information he's receiving from traditional media is not casting NFTs in the best light yet, you know. But there's a lot going on that I think, like for people who like us who are really involved in the community, like we see a lot more than than what's being put in the major newspapers. Let's talk about something that's happening uh, very, very recently. And I want to, I guess, draw it back to, I guess, how you started. So Hick at Nunk, which, which you, you mentioned recently discontinued because the founder decided to, I guess. <laughs> he sort of decided to, uh, I guess, to, to step out of the project. I wanted to get your take on, on, on both that and, and maybe how it's affected you know, yourself personally and how you view the platform uh, now and going forwards, but also you know, how, I guess, you came to choose uh, Hick at Nunk because I discovered you through Hick at Nunk and and I think most of your works is is on Hicket Nunk uh, and NFTs. I, I don't know whether that's a that was a conscious decision or whether it's a platform that you you really identify with because it's mm. it's one of the only kind of permissionless decentralized um, NFT platforms. Uh, a lot of the platforms on Ethereum are are permissioned and, and sort of gatekept in, in a sense. Um, I came to Hicket Nunk because uh, I saw it as somewhere that I could just make my own little world of what I, whatever I wanted this thing to be, that my following would follow me there, find me there, and I could kind of create, this is what I want NFTs to be like, you know, because of the flexibility of it, because of the ease of access, because you can kind of build on top of it. And I actually run my drops through my own website now, even though I was about to say, even though they're minted on hand, but they were minted on hand. Now, I'm going to be minting on object. And my decision to do that is, uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of a, a Game of Thrones going on at the moment with in regards to the future of the platform. But object.com object came around probably about a month after Hissetnunk did, or a couple months after. And they've been around for like more than five months now. And... One of my pieces was actually one of the first pieces to go on their site and because initially their site was called object.bid and it was like an auction function for Hissenung pieces. So you could auction your piece on object.bid, your, your hen piece on object.bid because you wouldn't be able to do that on, on the regular Hissenung platform. It was like an add-on. Object.com was stepping in with solutions when Hissetnung was having problems. And they continued to do that. And, you know, even most recently, uh, I think about a month ago, they started doing their own collections on the Tezos blockchain. So we could have uh, our own PF 
P projects, which actually would look because they're slightly curated too. And they're from like OG hen artists are actually a lot more interesting than a lot of the PFPs that have been minted on ETH. I mean, there's, there's been some really good PFP projects minted on ETH, like Lost Poets like from Puck, like I just mentioned before we were talking about. But the ones that are coming out on Tez are all like the art is done by like legitimate artists that are active in the space and that are, are pretty good at what they do. And so, so anyway, so it's interesting that object.com was able to facilitate that. One of is a music platform on the Tezos blockchain. Its founder is Quincy Jones, one of the founders, Quincy Jones, music mm-hmm. legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're bringing with them catalog, including John Legend, Whitney Houston's back catalog, Doja Cat just had a sellout drop on there. The game, uh, the rapper, the game, who mm. was a favorite of mine when I was a teenager. I was like, I had all his albums. Uh, so yeah, pretty pretty big star power there. They're bringing to the Tezos blockchain. They just had a drop with a. It's a collectible project that's backed by Chief Keef, the rapper, and they're going to be integrating with Object.com so that that collectible project is available on object.com as well. And they're going to integrate like that. So bringing a lot of star power, actually. Why I chose Hisanung after, why I preferred sort of minting there and being invested in that community, you know, it, it was partly because, like I said, I, I like creating my own world. I like doing my own thing. I've been so stubborn all my life, sometimes to my detriment of wanting to do my own thing. I haven't even applied to the to the curated platforms, even though I think Super Rare looks amazing. Like it looks like a, a brilliant platform to to meet your work on and and to buy and sell on. It's on my to do list for sure to apply to that website. But first, I wanted to just do my own thing completely, and I think Hisatnunk enabled me to do that. It enabled me to to form my own communities as well, and to sort of create my own my own little world and do my own thing. And it, it was beautiful while it lasted and now it's changing. And like I said, it, it's a bit Game of Thronesy right now. So I can't really say too much of an official stance on it, if that's okay. Other than, uh, you know, I was before, before we got on this call, I was actually uh, having a quiet moment about, about my feelings in, in regards to what's going on right now um, with, with Hisatnunkin and how that all went down. And, uh, you know, obviously times like this, when people get emotional and there's power struggles, basically, there's some sort of traumatic things that can happen, especially if you found someone that you feel like was home. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, it's deeply sad for, for most of us that were, that were a part of Hen community. The connections I've made, I hope will be lifelong friendships. So yeah, I just wish the best, and I, I really hope that th- that we can pull through the other side of this thing. I definitely found that the the, the hen community was uh, was very different than a lot of other NFT communities, and I'm pretty hopeful that uh, that it will kind of pull through. Because uh, if you think about it, in the history of crypto, sort of the the founder leaving and the project progressing is is kind of one of the best things that could possibly happen. Uh, the most famous example is, of course, Bitcoin. <laughs> Satoshi Nakamoto mm. left in uh, in mm. 2010, and you know he wasn't exactly the easiest person to work with, uh, <laughs> based on the, the the documentation that has been sort of left in terms of his mm. correspondences. So, 
I'm quietly sort of optimistic about the about the future of uh, of, of Hang. I thought maybe we could now then talk about a few of uh, your works specifically, individual works, uh, Lawrence. So one of the ones that I, I really quite liked was the one, the series called Rebellion Rising. And from what I understand, it was partially to mark Caravaggio's 450th birthday. <laughs> um, and of course, you a lot of the source images came from Caravaggio's paintings. But that you then combined with, uh, again, you know, process. So maybe, you know, obviously, I think for readers who may not be very familiar with the mechanics of that, could you maybe just walk us through what that process actually did in the works that you did in terms of altering, modifying, and kind of melding those images together? First of all, Caravaggio, when you think of artistic rebels, must come first and foremost in the minds of, uh, you know, uh, anybody with even a tertiary knowledge of art history. He was a rebel all his life. I mean, he known for quite terrible behavior, but also roguish behavior. He was on the run for a lot of his adult life and, you know, would really, <laughs> I guess, sort of stand and fight for even the smallest of grievances, which, you know, I guess if you are, uh, it's quite romantic to think back on it, but maybe he's wouldn't have been very nice if you like served him a wrong dish at a restaurant, which actually did happen. So he he got served a, a plate. I think there were there were mussels. There were two, two plates and uh, of mussels, and and one was cooked in oil and one was cooked in butter. And the waiter put it down, and Caravaggio asked him which was which, and then the the waiter said, "Well, why don't you just taste it, and then you'll know." And then Caravaggio threw the plate into his face which like actually cut his face open and then stabbed him. And then <laughs> Caravaggio was on the run after that. Um, not great behavior, not, not like a, a role model in, in that respect. And I think if it weren't for the fact that of, of what a, a genius painter he was, we probably wouldn't be talking about him at all. But, you know, he, he was a genius painter. And because of that rebellious streak, he did innovate for his time and created a whole, a whole new genre of painting the way that he used light, the way that it was like an ex very, he's very expressive in, in the sort of, in his subject matter, the characters that he used and their emotional expressions and the, I would say more than anything, the emotion that he was able to pull out of his characters. And, you know, and particularly in biblical scenes, which if you look at the art leading up to that, was actually very stiff. A lot of them were commissioned pieces by the church, the, the biblical scenes in our history, and they're, and they're pretty stiff. It's hard to relate to them. You look at the Caravaggio, you, you can know nothing about religion and, and just be completely engrossed by it. It's the human struggle that he was painting. And he put himself into a lot of his works as a witness to what was going on. And, you know, that, that's in the lyrics of, of my poem as well. Like, you know, the, the idea of being a witness to something the idea of standing outside and, and one of the lyrics is I witnessed my own birth and the idea of like looking at a memory or, or looking at like a, a big emotional moment in your life from the outside, sort of being a part of it as well, which I think is an aspect of creating art in the first place, it's sort of being both the onlooker. Uh, one of another lyric from the poem is you create the world with your eyes that is sort of repeated throughout. So you're being an onlooker, you're sort of, you're interpreting the world right there in front of you and, and on your canvas, you're expressing what you interpret. 
and you're also a part of it. I would say all of my work is autobiographical, even if I'm reading someone else's poem to someone else's painting that I've, you know, essentially animated and am performing. I still see them all as autobiographical. And my performances are autobiographical, even if they're someone else's words. They're, they're my feelings and they're my thoughts that I'm putting into it. And I think if, if they were just, you know, if my performances were just readings, then you know, I probably wouldn't have any legitimacy as an artist. But it, yeah, I feel like I'm, I, I, I put myself into it. So yeah, of course, it's interpretation and homage. And I mean, Rubens, you could say was like, all of Rubens work is just sort of an homage to Caravaggio. You know, Caravaggio inspired tens of thousands of artists, many of whom we know and, and look up to and see as original. I think we all inspire each other. And it's sort of interesting, the idea of an originator. Uh, I, I see it more like a relationship. If I'm using someone else's poem or, or as in a, a poem from a classical poem from like, you know, 1800s or before, you know, this was a way of working that, that I, I started doing a drum school, really, when I studied the classics at Bristol Vic Theatre School. They taught us how to interpret classic literature and how to perform it, and how to be an actor, and not just like somebody who recites words. I think that, that, all, that, that in a way, you have a relationship to say, if you're reading Shakespeare, and I have in a few of my pieces, if you're reading Shakespeare, it's a relationship that you have to the text. It's a relationship that you have to the character. And it's, I mean, how much is the character and how much is it yourself? I mean, and the answer is it's all of yourself. If, if you're there speaking the words, that's you, 100%. So I think you, you can't take a, the performative aspect out of what my pieces are. The performative aspect is a, a very important piece of the puzzle. Lawrence, before we uh, let you go, final question. Who is, your, <laughs> who is your favorite artist? I would say Lucien Freud has been my favorite artist since I was about 14 years old and in terms of living artists, I would say uh, Heinrich Dahlen is my favorite. Mm. And uh, if you don't know, Heinrich Dahlen is also a hand OG, which means you can purchase editions of his work on Hissanung for like, you know, r a ridiculous valuation for what they actually are. He's one of the most respected and greatest painters of our generation and living today. So obviously I have one of everything that he's put out. Um, <laughs> Except I don't think I have a one of one yet, but I'm closely watching. Yeah, his work as a painter is something I really have a strong connection with. And he's become a very close friend. We speak on a daily basis now through, um, originally through Hen Community and, and now just wherever we go. Lawrence, thank you for joining us on this episode of uh, Floyd's Rising. Uh, thank you for having me, guys. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Boys Rising. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, follow, and give us a review on your favorite podcast app. Remember to also follow us on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. You can reach out to us, send us a question, and just send us a DM on Twitter at Floor Is Rising. <laughs>